if you have coverage for let's say ten thousand dollars for example and you suffered a loss of ten thousand dollars your insurance company is going to give you ten thousand minus a thousand if your deductible is a thousand dollars are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It is Sarah Larvey and welcome to another weekly episode of Where Should I Invest? Today, we have an amazing guest and uh, and we've got some really great things happening. Depending on when you guys listen to this, our third year anniversary of the Right Club is going to be March 26th. So hopefully you guys can come out and it's going to be an amazing event with some amazing guests. And if you haven't been out to the Right Club, feel free to message me, Sarah at sarahlarby.com. Let me know it's your first time and I will give you a complimentary ticket to attend in Burlington. And uh, for those of you that are not in the Burlington area, you can always reach out to me and ask me whatever questions you might have about real estate investing. Just keep in mind, it might take me like seven to 10 days to get back just because I, I do get a lot of emails, but I do want to get back to everyone that takes some time to write me an email or Instagram. Send me an Instagram message. That's also an easy way to get a hold of me, which is Investor Sarah Larby. And on some other good news, one of my students, Arun and Poonam, they purchased and closed officially on their first property. And their first property ended up being a fiveplex. And that is going to be an amazing deal for them. I'm super excited. They found it. They closed on it. And now we are looking for new tenants for the two units that are vacant. So in a way, getting vacant units is a good thing. You can set your own rents. And we're going to essentially be working through increasing the income, decreasing the expenses, and refinancing. So super excited for them. I've got another student right now with a deal under contract. So going through that. And I will say in this market though, it is hard to find deals. Everyone is looking. There's multiple offers on everything. Don't get discouraged. At some point, it will slow down. So, and also I purchased a sixplex for residential two commercial units in Woodstock off market. So super excited for that. That closes mid-April. Still working through the Burlington Burr and things are things are coming along. Got two pieces of property that I'm looking at potentially off market as well. That could be good builds to uh, to build what we want to build on, but we are still looking through that. But what is for sure is the the sixplex in Woodstock and at some point I'm thinking my my burr will be done mid-March. Depending when you guys listen to that and then uh, here comes the Airbnb just in time for summer season. So I'm excited about that. And today's guest, it's also very relevant. On is actually an insurance broker. And uh, depending if you're doing some flips or you've got multifamily or single family or Airbnb, there's actually different insurance that you would get for each one. So we have a great conversation about all the different types of insurance that you might want, the different coverage types. I don't think we've actually had an insurance broker on here yet. So super excited. And guys, for those of you that left me a review, thank you. I got two new ones I saw in the last week. That's amazing. Really, really appreciate it. And I do this because I want to help. So when I hear the stories about how you guys bought your first property and the podcast helped you and helped you navigate through this crazy world of real estate, it makes it all worth it. So 
kudos to those of you that are taking action. And guys, if you are making offers out there and you are competing against multiple, multiple offers, don't worry. At some point you will get something. I think it, it takes me about 10 offers to get one deal, <laughs> maybe more. So things will come for you. Do not get discouraged. It's just nuts out there. There's such low supply and high demand in certain price points, which a lot of the investors are looking at. But I would say if you have not gotten on a wholesaler's list, there's a few good ones. Luke Boyron, Ryan Dolorentis. I think those two guys are doing some great things, different companies, of course. And there's a, a lot of other ones. If, if you're a wholesaler, by the way, send me an email so I can share your contact information potentially as well with you guys, with the listeners, because off-market opportunities and good deals, you know, it's not always just on MLS. You can find them through other avenues. So wholesalers out there, thank you for all the hard work, the marketing that you're doing, the negotiating that you're doing, and keep bringing us some off-market deals. On that note, Ryan DeLaurentis, thank you from DCI Properties for securing the sixplex that we just bought off you. We really appreciate it. So on that note, guys, hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, On. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you. You are the first insurance broker on the podcast and uh, really excited to have lots of conversations around that topic today. Oh, yes. It's a, quite the controversial topic for most investors. I know, I know. So first and foremost, give us a little bit about your background and how you got started into this business. So I kind of, I studied back, my background was in uh, paralegal studies. So I ended up graduating and the market at that time was back in 2011. They were saying that, you know, you should kind of open up your own firm. And I was fresh out of college. I'm like, I don't think I'm at the age at 21 to be able to give legal advice to people. So I started trying to find a, find a job, wasn't successful with it. So someone said, jump into insurance. And, you know, almost eight years later, lo and behold, I jumped from company to company and became an underwriter for insurance companies. And after that, I said, you know what, being a broker seems like more down my alley. And here awesome. we are four years later. Good, good. So you, I know you dabbled a little bit into investing. We're not going to talk about that today because I have a lot of questions around insurance, but why should somebody deal with an insurance broker specifically? Great question. I think that, you know, there's a common misconception in the community where people think that an agent and broker are used synonymously. But on the on the on the different the big difference between them is that an agent represents the company, a broker represents you. And an agent can only represent a company and their specific products, while a broker represents you and has access to multiple markets. So you end up getting a bit more customized advice, you get more you get customized solutions and multiple solutions. Okay, awesome. So obviously this is a, an investor specific show and I know you deal with a lot of investors already. What are some of the things that we need to know when it comes to insurance? Like it's obviously not the same as having a primary residence. Let's yeah. talk about that. Can you share some of those insights? Great question. So investors often kind of, this has happened quite often, unfortunately, where investors believe that they can get the regular home insurance on their rental properties. And the issue with that is that the ins part of the insurance company's rating, the way they charge their premium, is based on how the place is occupied. If it's rented out, it's technically considered a business. It's an income-producing property, which is not as a primary residence. So it has a different occupancy rating, and premiums are charged differently for it. If an insurance company, if you rated it, 
if you told your insurance company, no, this is my personal home, and you've had it rented out, you've had it using it as a student rental or whatever the case might be, and if there's a loss, the adjuster can come out and take a look at this place and go, you don't live here. And they can claim that as misrepresentation and deny your claim. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that we talked about in the past, as I was mentioning when I was speaking at Gary Hibbert's event about how you need specific insurance for when you're doing renovations or when the property is vacant and it costs so much more. And there were a few questions about, you know, why would you not just use regular insurance and why would you not use regular insurance on? So at those times, it's it, many of our investors and you, you'd attest to this is that they often grab, they usually run down, dip, uh, run down properties and they're planning to do the burr strategy, you know, buy, refi, renovate. Oh, I forgot this, the term is buy. <laughs> buy, renovate, rent, refinance, repeat. There you go. So the renovate part on it, part of it is when they go in, renovate the whole building, add value to it, and then refinance and get the cash out. During the time when the renovations are taking place, your standard insurance policy would not jump in and cover it. First, when there's work going on and nobody's living there, you need something called a builder's risk policy, which is also known as a course of construction policy because your standard home insurance policy has clauses in there saying that we don't cover when there's renovations going on. So if you've gone in or you, uh, you know, you're doing work, at, you're doing work at the property, sometimes it takes a couple of weeks, couple of months, and it's not rented out, you technically have no coverage on the property. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for, for mine, it was like, $1,400 for three months and it had to be paid all up front. But you know what? I would rather pay that and have peace of mind than should something happen and then I have to pay thousands and thousands just because of a bigger, much bigger problem. And most investors, savvy investors will tell you that insurance is a necessary expense, but it's a tax, taxable write-off. And they should talk to their accountant about, you know, what percentage they can write off and stuff like that. But like you said, you know, to save 1400 bucks 1500 bucks but they're going to put their $300,000 property on the line for it eh, I wouldn't be comfortable doing that myself some might be but again that's up to them yeah so now what if somebody has a property for like 2 years and then they want to renovate or it's vacant for over 72 hours like what do we need to know and what do we need to do to make sure that we're covered so great question just call your insurance broker. Let them know that this is the plan. Your insurance broker has got to be part of your team, not just somebody you're just contacting once when you bought the policy and then listen, we'll talk on your renewal date. Just like how you got your accountant, you got your you got your lawyer, you also have your insurance broker with you in this mix of in this team as well, including a mortgage broker and realtor. Because what happens is that whatever planning, whatever you're planning to do to the property, it's vacant, your tenants left, you're planning to get the place retenanted, or you're planning to do renovations into it have that conversation with your broker because they'll have to modify your coverage because each insurance company will have their own uh, restrictions. They may say that, okay, we may cover your, if the place has been vacant for 30 days or 45 days, we just, we'll, we'll cover it. Anything beyond that, you need to get either a vacant, a vacancy policy, a vacant dwelling policy. And if you're planning to do renovation, you can't get a vacant dwelling policy. You need to get a builder's risk policy. And your broker would be able to advise you how to set it up. If he knows your time frame or she knows your time frame of your plan is going to be vacant for these many months. There it's going to be there's going to be work happening for these many months. They have that information to set up the correct policy at the correct time. So that's one less headache for you, you know, to keep in mind while you're running through permits and all the other busy stuff as an investor is going to be going through. That's one less headache you can transfer off to your broker to take care of. So that in case you have a loss, you we can't it's very difficult to play the I didn't know card because 
an insurance company, if they don't want to, if they have ways to avoid writing a check for a couple hundred thousand, they're probably going to try to stick with trying to avoid it. Yeah, absolutely. So personally for me, I I wouldn't claim anything unless it was like a total loss of thousands of dollars. Like if the place was on fire or there was a huge flood, but I'm not going to do like, okay, there's a couple crap cracked windows. I'll just suck that up and then I'll pay for it. Do you see that as being a benefit in the long run? Just paying unless it's a total loss. I I love that. And I always tell my investors this, have a contingency fund and keep your deductible at a level which to the amount that you can actually you're going to absorb the loss because keep in mind, the higher the deductible is, the lower the premium. And if it may not make sense, it may not be a huge impact on savings on one property, but let's say if you have 10 properties, 20, 30, 40, you start saving a bit on each one of the properties, the savings can add up significantly. Like, uh, let me ask you, what would you say is your threshold before you would put a loss in? Yeah. So I do actually all my deductibles at 2,500 and it's only because, and I would actually do them at 5,000, but the difference between the 2,500 per month and the 5,000 per month is actually very, very very minimal. Yeah. And I find the biggest difference is actually when you get to like from a thousand deductible to 2,500, that's where the biggest savings are. So that's usually what I do with every single property, because if something happens for less than that, even 5,000, I probably still cover it out of pocket. Exactly. Exactly. So always keep a contingency fund. And this way, because you bumped up from the thousand, which is the minimum standard out in the market, you bumped it up to 2,500, you get that initial return on savings. Now, you also got quotes for how much the difference would be from 2500 to 5000 which means that you saw that it wasn't significant enough for you to go, go take on that additional risk. Right. And that's a wise move. So I recommend all your investors to call up your broker and have this discussion. Listen, if I'm at $1,000, what would it cost if it's $2,500? And, and, and what I, the conversation that has to happen with your, with your investors is that, okay, you have a thousand dollar deductible. This is this this is uh, you know everybody wants to have the lowest amount of deductible, but they keep a contingency fund of three thousand, five thousand dollars. Then why not just bump it up to those levels because you'll end up saving over time. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, just want to take a quick moment and introduce you to a key member of my power team. Dylan Suter is my realtor who's been working very hard to find me amazing deals. And Dylan, I'm a big proponent in working with realtors that are investors. And Dylan is truly an investor. Welcome, Dylan. And thank you so much for being a sponsor. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I want to first thank you for having us as a sponsor. We're really grateful to be working with you and all of the support you've given us over the past couple of years. So thank you so much for that. And our focus as Elevation Realty is to focus our attention primarily on real estate investors that are looking to replace their active income with a passive income and go enjoy what they like most, such as time with the family or up at the cottage, whatever it may be. So what we do is we focus our attention on creating a plan specific for each client, whether that is something they want to have five properties in five years and be able to sit on them for 10 years and then sell them and retire on the the equity. Or if they're looking to scale their portfolio and retire in the next 12 months, we can look at doing that as well through joint ventures or Airbnb short-term rentals. We can talk through buildings, buy, renovate, refinance, single family purchases, and the list goes on. That's awesome. Now, Dylan, if people wanted to reach out and get help from you, where can they go? They can check us out online at www.elevationrealty.ca, E-L-E-V-A-T-I-O-N, realty.ca, or they can email us at info at elevationrealty.ca, Give us a call or text at 905-592-4220 
or check us out at the right club or other meetup groups that we're usually at as well. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dylan. It is awesome working with you as always. And now back to the show. And now back to the show. Yeah. And it's, and it's actually pretty significant when you look at the difference between a thousand bucks, 2,500 bucks. That's like, that's, there's a big gap there. So I usually like to call. So when I have something under contract, like before I even remove conditions, like one of the things that I do in my process is actually reach out to the insurance company that I work with. And I say, give me a quote for this. Is that a good idea? Is that, you know, something that you recommend to do beforehand or after? Like, when would you do that in the process? Get that. Absolutely. Get get the information well in advance. And I, and I recommend this to even my investors as to, and even your investors as have the conversation with your broker as early as possible. Because what that does is that it gives us a chance to go out to the market and negotiate terms. And that if we only have, let's say you call me at 12 o'clock and your closings in two hours, well, we're not going to have options. We're not going to have time to negotiate. So getting options and, uh, you know, multiple code options, coverage options, they can all take time because we as brokers need to communicate with the insurance underwriters themselves. So you doing that with your, with your company is fantastic because this gives them a chance to go get your numbers and you get to make an informed decision. Yeah, absolutely. And also, yep. I, just wanna, I just also want to toss in one thing. Sorry to interrupt is the deductible portion on your policy is actually the loss. I just want to clarify that for people who don't know is the actual, it's, it's the, it's the amount of loss that you are taking on before the insurance company steps in. So if you have coverage for, to the investors who are not sure, if you have coverage for, let's say $10,000, for example, and you suffered, you suffered a loss of $10,000 your insurance company is going to give you 10,000 minus a thousand if your deductible is a thousand dollars. So that that first thousand dollars is your responsibility. Anything above and beyond that is the insurance company's coverage. So just want to clear, let your, let your guys know that. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you for clarifying. So let's just say, you know, the unfortunate happens and one of my rental properties has a fire. Okay. Walk us through the process of what somebody does at that point in time when it comes to an insurance perspective. Okay, perfect. So you're going to be first of all panicking uh, because when you're <laughs> your building's on fire, whatever the case is, it's the worst come worst scenario type of scene. First thing is call, you know, try to mitigate the loss as much as possible. You know, call the fire department, get them involved. Second call is to your insurance broker. Talk to them and see if it makes sense to put a claim through because sometimes one of my clients they had a claim. It looked really bad when the claim, there was a fire and everything. It looked really bad. And he was thinking it's going to be a huge loss. After the fire settled down, he got a couple quotes to get it repaired. It turned out it was just superficial damage on his brick outside. Now, to fix that, all it needed was a good power wash and a bit of repair to the patio, which ended up costing him like $3,200. But at the time when it was, when he saw it all up in flames, he was thinking it's going to be really expensive. So I recommend getting you know, call your fire department, talk to your broker and get quotes to see how much it would cost uh, It would cost to repair it. If again, it's a significant amount, you can tell your broker to put, start the claim process and the insurance company will at that time get involved. They'll contact, there'll be an adjuster from the insurance company touching base with you. And then you guys will just be going over the, the amount of loss, the deductible and uh, figuring out the fastest way to get you guys back up on your two feet. Okay, so I'm going to ask you some details about that. Hopefully you can share a little bit, but let's just say I like the house burnt down and it's not going to be a quick fix. Okay. And I call you and I say my house burnt down. Can we walk through like the actual timeline for all of this stuff? Like what actually happens? Who comes on the spot? Like how do we figure this piece out? Let's just dig, dig into a little bit. 
more if possible. So every company has different different ways that they operate uh, and how fast they how fast their claim service works. Ideally, the scenario is that if your house burned down, you'd, obviously at that time you're going to put the put the claim through. The first thing you'd want to do is call your your adjuster's going to come out once your claims open up. Your adjuster's going to come and analyze the scenario. They'll also pull out your copy of your policy. Now this is where two things are really important that you should have addressed before the claim happened. First is your rental income coverage. If it's tenanted out, which for most of your investors it is, you want to make sure that that uh, the amount of rental income, which means that that's how much rent you were getting paid annually from your tenants, is accurate because your insurance company is going to be stepping in and replacing that rental income while the house is being repaired and your tenants have to leave. The second thing is your actual uh, your uh, reconstruction cost on your property. Now. Sometimes, you know, for premium sake, to get lower premiums, people underestimate or undervalue their property. And this can come and bite back because there's something called a coin. They can, there's a, a type, they can, they may have not enough coverage to reconstruct their house. At that time, the insurance company can step in and they can either deny the claim for, you know, misrepresenting what the actual value of the home was, or they can step in and they'll uh, cover up to, they'll reconstruct the house and send you the invoice for the balance that was owed on reconstruction. So example, say your actual reconstruction of your property was 275000 You only insured it for 250000 So there's a $25,000 gap in coverage. So the insurance company may may cover up to 250 and give you the invoice for 275, as for the other 25000 And that'll be up to you from putting the bill out of your pocket. Okay, so when is it ever a better idea to just sell the bird's house and cash in? Because that, that's an option too, right? Like you could take the money, cash in and try to sell the house on the market to somebody that's going to flip it that's used to this kind of stuff? Possibly. You do have the option to, again, you can you can negotiate with your insurance company. There are options that they can give you like the salvage value and, and what the actual burnt value of the property is now. You did have coverage on it and stuff. You can negotiate with them to pay they can pay you a certain cash value for it they're not going to give you the full value of what it was originally insured for because that kind of would encourage people to burn their properties to get cash out of it really fast so they'll give you they'll help you with the cash value but again you can negotiate most people don't know this but you have the ability to negotiate with your adjusters and at times you know as an investor that would be your call to see if that cash value that they're offering makes sense to you know take it and you know deal with the loss yourself, flip it or whatever the case is, or um, go about and uh, try to get the insurance company to replace it. And keep in mind when they're replacing it, they're going to replace it with brand new. They're going to put, they're essentially going to build up the building brand new if you have 100% coverage. Right. Yeah. Because I, I have heard of some people doing that, just taking the cash and then selling it. And then, like you said, like you don't want people to burn. And I'm, I'm sure if they, you know, they get investigated that they're obviously going to be in a lot more trouble, but you know, you <laughs> that but i have heard of like people looking at both options and taking that cash value and then selling the burnt house and coming out a little further ahead and sometimes they just don't want to deal with the process and the headache right as well like that could be another reason yeah it can definitely be a lot of headaches as well because um you could you may like you know if a house was built in the 1930s for example, and you ended up, you had the loss in 2019, one thing we can both agree on that there's, is probably not up to code when it's being rebuilt. And, you know, the bylaws coverage, bylaws have changed, you know, you can't have certain insulation, you can't have these kind of drywalls, things like that may end up costing your, costing you a higher value in reconstruction. 
And, you know, that can end up coming and biting you back where you may not want to deal with all that headache. And in this, this case, you may just say, look, I'll just take the cash value and flip the land to a third party. Yeah, absolutely. So I obviously asked my tenants to get tenant insurance and it's like peanuts. It's like maybe 25 bucks a month or something, because if something did happen, their stuff is not covered. What's your take on that? And also, does that also include if they accidentally set the house on fire, like would the insurance company go to them first if they, I don't know, smoked in the house, lit a candle, like they were the culprit of it? So, okay. Common mistakes and misconceptions out there. So a tenant cannot insure something they don't have insurable interest in. So oftentimes landlords have this assumption that, oh, my tenant has insurance. They have a $1 million insurance and that covers the building. That's that's incorrect. That's not what that $1 million is right. for. That's their liability coverage. And so if your tenant, let's say, is smoking in the apartment or their unit and they're not supposed to, they end up burning the house out, burning the house down. You're their contents, their belongings inside inside their unit is going to be covered under their tenant's policy, right? The time that the tenant cannot live in that apartment or that unit anymore because of that fire and they have to relocate to another place, that's covered by the tenant under coverage called additional living expenses. Uh, and now when you go put your claim through, look, my house burned down, my tenant was smoking, the insurance company will obviously rebuild the house in this case, assuming there's no issues. And then they're going to go and subrogate against the tenant. Uh, and they're going to try to recover the amount of you know hundreds of thousands of dollars they have to put in to rebuild the house. They're going to go after the tenant. Now, how can you confirm, how can you guarantee that a tenant has the financial means to pay the insurance company? Well, you, they have, you make sure they have insurance. That liability, that one or $2 million liability coverage well, actually, if proven guilty in the court of law, um, the or in this case responsible, uh, that one million, two million will go, uh, will pay out to the insurance company, your insurance company, to recover the damages. So that's really interesting. So then, if they did not have that, then what happens? For the so this case, they're out, they're you know they don't have cover, they don't have coverage for their belongings. Uh, they do not have coverage for, you know, additional for living expenses elsewhere. That's everything on their own. And secondly, and thirdly, is that when these when they end up, you know, in this case, if the insurance company cannot subrogate against the tenant, they pay, you know, they paid out of it. They don't have any options to recover it. In that case, you know, your it's reflective on your premium. So your own premium next year would take a higher jump than it normally would. Yeah. Okay. So then as a, an investor and as a landlord, like it's definitely, so it's one of the things that I make sure that they do before they move in, but you know, it also worries me because halfway through, like in six months from now, if they stop paying that, I mean, there's really not any way for me to, to know, or is there? You can actually ask them at any time to provide you with a confirmation of insurance. What that means is that they'll contact their insurance company and they say, listen, my landlord needs a confirmation of insurance. And the insurance company will draft up a document for the date they ask or a couple of days in ahead after they'll send a document to them that they'll, they'll, be, they'll, require, they'll forward it off to you. And they'll show you the date that the insurance company is saying that they have coverage effective of today's date or that date, recent date they had 
putting the inquiry for. I always advise my one of the risk management tips I give my clients is that that always ask for a renewal of their confirmation of insurance every year. So if they give it to you originally during closing, six months later, they closed it. But if you make sure that you ask for that confirmation of insurance, the tenant's insurance again, on the on the renewal, they'll know that uh, that they're going to have to keep it in force because they're just going to have to re, uh, repurchase it again. So that's content insurance plus liability insurance. So, exactly. so be, if you're a broker though, like wouldn't it make sense for me to specifically say, please get it through on as an example so that if it stops being paid, like would you have visibility on that to let the investor know or not really? Well, again, you can't, uh, as there is confidentiality between clients. So even if it's a tenant and they're in the same, same uh, building, as brokers, we can't disclose if the person stopped paying or whatever the case is. Okay. Um, so usually we can't disclose information in that sense. However, the best risk management tool I always tell my landlords like yourself is that, look, when you sign the contract, let the tenant know that every year you'll be required to provide a confirmation of insurance. And at that stage, you've set the tone that, look, this, if three months later, if I cancel it, I'll pay a penalty to, to the insurance company. And then I have to repurchase it in nine months. So might as well just keep it. It's like, it's cheap. It's like 30 bucks, whatever, you know, uh, 30 bucks a, a month. Yeah, that's a great point. And then, you and, you know, just letting them know ahead of time that you're going to be checking every year, I think keeps them active. Exactly. <laughs> so, okay, here's another question. So personally for me, I like to hardwire my carbon and fire in every single house. Like as I purchase something and I close on it before the tenants move in, I have my electrician go and do that just because for me, it's a little bit more peace of mind. Right. Um, a, what's your thought on that? And then B, if a fire does happen and somebody doesn't have the proof and the check of the last time that they've checked and changed the batteries, et cetera, like what's the repercussion? Oh, great question. Okay, so this would be more of an adjuster's response on this, but I'm going to try my best on this to answer that question. So hardwiring is an excellent way in case the batteries aren't replaced in time and whatever. You know, hardwiring is a great way to make sure that there is an alarm <laughs> that goes off. In case, so that's an excellent excellent thing to do, and you should let let your insurance company know as well that you have them hardwired and stuff. If let's say you put the bat you uh, put the battery once in and the battery runs out. The, you haven't checked on the yearly basis, you haven't done your inspection of the property, the insurance company can may have an issue with you not following the local bylaws. And I recommend that every municipality has their own specific requirements as to how many carbon monoxides, fire alarms, fire extinguishers that need to be on the property, how far should they be from each other and where they should be located in the house. If bylaws aren't followed and that can, that led to, you know, a loss not being dealt with as early as it should have been because the fire, there was no fire extinguisher on the premises or there was, uh, you know, the alarms were too far apart, which caused a huge loss in one area of the house that wouldn't have been normally caused if the bylaws were followed, the fire code wasn't followed. That can all come back and that can give grounds to the insurance company to deny your claim. Yeah. I mean, that's like, that's probably actually one of my biggest fears. And that's, this is exactly why we have to hardwire because some tenants tried it like in some properties um, in the beginning when we first started, like they were cooking and then the fire alarm went off and kept going off. They were annoyed. They took the fire alarm down. Um, <laughs> and then I, you know, I could be denied a claim if they set the, the whole kitchen on fire. I just don't want to leave that all in their hands, you know? It's, it's true. And the hardwiring is excellent and highly recommended. I remember I had contacted one of these energy saving companies. They came through and they said, we're doing an analysis of my home. And they said that I told them, can I just have those like wireless ones 
place around the house will just be so much easier than hardwiring them. I don't want to be fishing wires through the walls. They, they flat out said, no, we can't because as per regulation in this, in this city, we have to hardwire it in this location of the house and you need to have this place and you should have your fire um, extinguishers inspected, I think, every these couple of months, X number of months. And I said, okay, I didn't know this myself, but now I do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that I do before I close on a property is I have my electrician come through and then he'll be able to let me know like, oh, you need to add one here or, and it's like, I don't know, maybe it's 15 to $1,700 per property, but like, it's totally worth it. Like, I don't want to have to be responsible for a 50, 100, $200,000 loss and have to pay for it because I didn't like check that the tenants removed the batteries and maybe I would have like gone six months prior, you know, like I do my checks every, every six months, but I can't control the tenants. <laughs> Everything is right. I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll share, uh, share a story with one of my friends. His, his tenant used to smoke inside the, in the apartment. And so every time he would smoke, the alarm would go off. And he got one day annoyed. He took out the battery, forgot. And uh, lo and behold, he fell asleep. And that, how, that room ended up catching on fire. Everything, everybody was fine. But the loss happened. And um, Again, I don't exactly remember what happened with his insurance company itself, but he was telling me that he, after that incident, he went and hardwired everything in his house. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, if you're listening to this, just hardwire from the start as you're closing. You know, this is, this is why you ask for like three to four showings on closing is to get some of your trades in. Some, even if the house is pretty good and it's pretty turnkey, you know, the electrician always, always comes to my properties. And, and sometimes like they're like, well, you don't have anything upstairs because every, you know, every floor that has bedrooms, to my understanding for the, where I, I invest, needs to have something. And mm-hmm. so some of them just don't and you have to fish it through. And yes, there's going to be holes in the wall. Your handyman comes and fix that, fixes that afterwards. But it's, uh, I'd rather the tenants be safe. And then I would rather not have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars of damages. Cause at some point you have enough properties, stuff happens. Yeah. It's, it's quite common, especially in a hot, hot market in the past couple of years, you've noticed this as well, that, um, you know, people will buy as is and without doing an inspection. That's fine at that time, but do make sure to get an inspection after you've closed on the property before you while you before you start your renovations and stuff because safety caution caution is better than cure. Yeah, absolutely. Now the other thing is, you know, once in a while the insurance brokers come to the properties and then they view things and you know if they have an issue. The other piece I would say is even though you've got a, a, no conditions on a property, if the insurance comes, from my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong they can deny the insurance based on whatever or they make you fix it within a certain amount of time. Like if it's a really bad property and the issue I have is that if you can't get insurance, you can't get a mortgage because the mortgage will ask for the insurance before they issue the loan. So can we talk about that? What are your thoughts? So you're saying that the insurance company steps in and your insurance broker comes to inspect the property and the insurance company rejects it because it didn't. For whatever reason, maybe there's kind of knob in two, but let's just say knob in two. So what if they uncover oh, yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, knob in two, the good old, good old wiring. So it's true. The insurance at that time, if one insurance company has declined it, there are other insurance there, knob and tube is a very funny one because there aren't a lot of insurance companies that can do it but the ones who can do it they do charge quite a significant amount so you can always work around things where you can work come up with creative ways where you can talk your broker should be able to talk to the insurance company and let them know that you know you're planning to get rid of the knob and tube once you take possession you're going to be doing reno and uh, you know upgrading the amps and putting it back to 100 or 200 amps and replacing the wiring in the house if those things are communicated to the insurance company, they can they can make an exception 
two, they can make it, give you a certain time frame that look, make sure it's done within this time frame, or there's no coverage. So if those time if those terms work with your scenario, you can make the closing happen. And there are other companies which I don't like to proceed down that route because the premium is exorbitant. Uh, Nobin too has known is 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 uh, is a big like red flag across insurance markets. But the ones who can make arrangements for it, they charge a pretty penny. Yeah, absolutely. Like I've uh, I've heard like even galvanized pipes and stuff like that. Like if you once you change them out, you go back to the insurance broker or the insurance company. And then your premiums go down, but there's definitely workarounds. Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, we can keep talking about this because I have, you know, like I'm fascinated by all this stuff, but the next part of this podcast is actually our lightning round. So I'm going to ask you a series of five questions. Okay. Everybody gets the same question. So you can always tweak them a little bit if they're, they're too investor specific. Okay. Okay. I've, I've listened to your podcast all the time. And every time I hear this, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to answer it this way. I'm going to answer it this way. And now that I'm finally on this, in this hot seat, now I'm I'm kind of blanking out as to what I'm going to say. Okay, let's get started. Ready? And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick moment and pause the podcast interview here because I wanted to introduce you to Dahlia Barsoom of Streetwise Mortgages. I am a big believer, as you guys probably have heard, work with a mortgage broker. They are going to help you scale. And when I was first growing in real estate investing and looking to buying my second property and my third property, I was going directly to the bank then. I hadn't met Dahlia yet. And I actually was hitting a roadblock when it came to financing because the bank started asking me for 25% as the down payment. And then for my third property, they wanted 35%. And it was really, really hard for me to A, understand why it was creeping up like that. And B, I didn't have 35% to put down. I had 20%. And luckily, I actually met Dahlia at that point in time. And Dahlia is actually an investor herself. And she's works with many, many investors. And she knows all the pitfalls and the barriers that normally come up with dealing directly with a bank and all the different lenders. And Dahlia was actually able to not just find me proper alternatives, but I've got nine properties now and I'm still able to get financing with A lenders and it allows me to be able to scale up without hitting the financing wall. And so she's been a tremendous help. So the other thing I really, really enjoy is Dahlia also does a free goals analysis. So if you go to either my website or her website, streetwisemortgages.com, Mention the podcast and ask for the free goals analysis. It was a game changer for me. And it allowed me to actually understand what I needed to do, how many properties I was going to get because of the cash flow that I was looking for. If you guys wanted to reach out to Dahlia, you can reach out to her by email, which is info at streetwisemortgages.com. Or you can actually reach out to her on the website at streetwisemortgages.com and then just go to the contact section. And you can also call her at 1-800-208-6255. Thanks for listening and back to the show. And now back to the show. All right, ready. (laughs) Number one, what is your favorite real estate investing book ever? Oh, actually here. Fix and Flip by? Ian Zabo. Ian Zabo. And Mark Loeffer. I think so. Awesome. Yes. Okay. Very cool. Number two, what is your favorite podcast? Ooh, yours. Okay, so what other than mine? <laughs> okay, okay. I'm really enjoying uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. Nice. Yeah, that's a good one. Number three, what's your favorite pastime? What do you do aside from 
real estate, aka insurance and your work? Okay. I like hitting the gym and cooking. So those are my two like things that I kind of enjoy. Very good. What do you like to make when you cook? Oh, okay. This is a tricky one. I'm uh, kind of on the novice stage. So just trying out a bunch of like fried chicken and things of that nature. Awesome. Cool. Number four, if you lost all your money and your assets tomorrow, how would you start again? Start doing the basics like cold calling and door knocking. Okay. All right. And last question, if somebody has $50,000 and they want to get started potentially as an investor, how would they spend it in your opinion? Okay. So I've been hearing a lot of news about private mortgages and they seem to be quite a good ROI initially, especially if you're trying to build up that, build up that initial capital for property investment. I would put it there or I would invest it in myself to develop the skills I need. Okay. Awesome. So on where can listeners find you if they wanted to reach out and know more about you? Uh, You can actually reach out to me on my personal contact site, theinsurers.ca. That would be, you can get my email and my number off that site, or you can search search me on Facebook as on Japanwala or Google me and you'll find me there as well. Okay. Now how do you spell your name? Cause it's quite you. <laughs> okay. So on is a U N and last name is Japan which is Japan as in the country. W a L a. Perfect. And any final last words of advice? Real estate is the way to go. Perfect. Awesome. That's it. That's it. That's a good mic drop. Real estate is the way to go on that note on. Thank you for being on the show and providing all your valuable insights. Appreciate it. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons. And at the time, they all seemed very valid. But as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away. And eventually, only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked. And also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And, you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.